This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, big announcement recently from First Lady Michelle Obama. She unveiled a new food labeling design that will be required on all food items sold in this country. That's right, Mark. The First Lady unveiled the first revision in FDA food labeling design in 20 years. The new design will show the calorie count in much larger, bold block letters right at the top of the label. And food manufacturers are going to be required to show just how much sugar they added to the food item as well. You know, Margaret, most uh, health experts point to the introduction of high fructose corn syrup into processed foods as one of the driving forces behind the nation's obesity epidemic, one that is also leading to an expected diabetes epidemic as well. A majority of the population simply isn't aware of the sugar they're consuming in most of the foods every day. And most folks are still unaware of the fact that portion sizes have crept up significantly in the past couple of decades. So another aspect of the new labeling design will show a very clear portion size and I might say a realistic portion size associated with the calorie count listed. And that isn't a complete panacea to the nation's weight problems, Margaret, but it's also a very big leap forward in the right direction. And the nation's food manufacturers have been somewhat eerily quiet on this new development, but it's expected that there will be some considerable pushback from the food industry on the new labeling design. The First Lady has been a staunch advocate for promoting better health across the country with her Let's Move campaign and her promotion of home gardens and greater emphasis on fresh produce availability. Apparently, her staff worked diligently with the FDA to get this change approved. And Mark, another new set of rules was recently approved by the FDA, and that's the rules governing oversight of medical mobile apps for the healthcare industry. Now, that's an area, as we've talked about often on the show, that's just exploded with growth in recent years. With some 100,000 medical and fitness apps now in the marketplace, the FDA has issued new guidelines for the growth industry of medical software and mobile apps to make sure they adhere to safety requirements, something our guest today is quite an expert in. Bradley Merrill Thompson is a health law expert with a special emphasis on the FDA. He's also general counsel of the M Health Regulatory Council. That's the voice for mobile health technology stakeholders in Washington. And he'll break down these new regulations regarding mobile medical apps and take a look at some other policies coming out of Washington that are seeking to regulate this new and uh, perhaps disruptive discipline in the healthcare arena. Factcheck.org's managing editor, Laurie Robertson, looks at false claims that the Affordable Care Act is going to extract hundreds of millions of dollars of new taxes on small businesses. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Bradley Merrill Thompson in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Mary Ann O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. The clock is winding down towards the end of open enrollment for folks to sign up for insurance under the Affordable Care Act. Most states wind up open enrollment by the end of March. And while numbers of those signing up are over 4 million, still a long way to go before they reach the target 7 million figure, the president held a town hall meeting to court one group that should qualify for subsidies in big numbers, Latinos, many of whom have stayed away from the insurance exchanges due to lack of access to good information. Meanwhile, another campaign out of the White House is the First Ladies Just Move campaign aimed at getting Americans, and especially kids, to get more exercise to tackle the growing obesity problem. 
But as many experts will tell you, it still comes down to what you eat. The First Lady announcing last week that those food labels on the sides of food packages are about to get a whole new look, with calorie counts now bolder, much larger, and smack dab at the top of the labels. Her staff reportedly worked diligently with the Food and Drug Administration to push for the first meaningful change in the food label design in 20 years. The new labels will also make more clear what an actual portion size is in relation to the calorie count, and will also require food manufacturers to show how much sugar they've added to the food. Health advocates, for their part, are thrilled with the proposal. The First Lady is poised to publicly promote the plan. A disturbing report out of the Department of Health and Human Services shows one in three nursing home or critical care patients, about a million patients across the country, is harmed by the health care workers treating them, either through incorrect doses of medication, the wrong medication altogether, or other accidents in care delivery. A study by the Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services focused on skilled nursing care, treatment in nursing homes for up to 35 days after a patient was discharged from an acute care hospital. The doctors found that 22 percent of patients suffered events that caused lasting harm. Another 11 percent were temporarily harmed. In 1.5 percent of the cases, the patient died. And when it comes to sexually aggressive behavior in bars, it's not the amount of alcohol the men have consumed that's the culprit. A recent study shows it was intoxicated women who triggered aggressive attention from men. The study conducted by the University of Toronto and University of Washington showed that women that were perceived to be intoxicated were accosted 25 percent more than other women at the bars and that bartenders rarely intervened. Studies suggesting barkeeps need more training to look out for these acts of aggression. I'm Ariana O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Bradley Merrill Thompson, FDA law expert and general counsel for the M Health Regulatory Coalition, the voice for M Health technology stakeholders in Washington. Mr. Thompson is an attorney with the firm Epstein, Becker & Green, where he leads the Connected Health Initiative. He serves as a member of the work group created by the Department of Health and Human Services and the Federal Communications Commission to identify key considerations in improving patient safety with health information technology and mobile medical apps. Mr. Thompson was elected as a fellow of the American Bar Association and was included in the 100 most notable people in the medical device industry. Mr. Thompson, welcome to Conversations in Healthcare. Thanks so much for having me. And Brad, uh, as an attorney specializing in health laws with a focus on the FDA, you've been a driving force in seeking to create some uh, meaningful guidelines for developers and stakeholders in this rapidly expanding uh, medical uh, mobile medical app world, uh, and you helped launch the M Health Regulatory Council to shape policies that will help the healthcare industry and embrace the benefits of, of mobile cellular communication products and services. And uh, I think they are expanding exponentially. And can you give our listeners sort of the broad overview of of the marketplace and talk a little bit about its stakeholders and the impact mobile medical apps are are likely having on healthcare industry and, and on consumers? Well, you're exactly right. There are so many different types of apps. And uh, every day it seems like I wake up and read the literature and see uh, someone's come up with some new idea that, um, that, that no one had thought of before. Um, but broadly speaking, you can put at least a few of these apps into, into some buckets that show kind of the trends for where the industry is going. One of them is certainly the wellness and fitness category. And within that, there's a, just a whole slew of apps that revolve around um, tracking 
key aspects of body function or, or exercise or caloric intake uh, for purposes really of helping you to, to change your behavior and to become healthier. Uh, there's this philosophy that if we do a better job of, of tracking health information, we can do a, a better job of managing it. In addition to that, there's a whole slew of apps that really are designed to try and get typically consumers, sometimes doctors, the best available information on a given subject. So whether it's maybe a rare disease, there are apps that simply help you organize uh, all of the educational uh, materials related to that disease and, and allows you to get the information that you need. Then there's a variety of used in remote monitoring. That is, the cell phone goes with us wherever we go, and so uh, it's a way really to collect information, often from a medical device, and kind of tether you to your doctor. So if you're a person with diabetes and you need to manage your blood glucose, then it becomes a way to transmit that data back to your doctor. One of the really exciting areas for mobile apps uh, that's really growing uh, significantly is what's called clinical decision support software. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a big name for simply um, uh, the analytics that are used on data now, help with the diagnosis of disease, help with identifying uh, the most likely or effective treatment so that's an exciting area. You have a variety of, of products that are really just physician tools. You know, we really want to figure out a way to make uh, physicians more efficient. There's a physician shortage, but there's also, frankly, just an ever-growing need to wring cost out of the healthcare system. So if we can arm a doctor with a tablet and uh, that tablet can be used to pull up lab values, the doctor can see the, the x-ray or other radiological image. It simply makes the doctor more efficient as he, as he encounters patients. Even the pharmaceutical industry is getting into the game. I've been reading about apps lately that are used for a variety of things from a smart pill, which simply tells you, it actually tracks when you take your medication, you know, down to the minute uh, in order to help uh, particularly the elderly or anyone who just loses track of whether they've taken their medications. But even more cutting edge, it, there's apps that help you decide whether a given drug is appropriate for you. And the FDA has suggested that, that pharmaceutical companies ought to think about using those apps as a way to come to FDA and suggest that a product should be uh, downgraded or switched from prescription status to over-the-counter because the use of the drug can be guided, in effect, by a mobile mm -hmm. app. Mobile health is completely revolutionizing the way they organize clinical trials, and medical device manufacturers are all of a sudden realizing that their devices are going to be electronically tethered to mm -hmm. every other part of the health ecosystem, and that raises a, a host of issues around interoperability. So it's really affecting everyone. Well, Brad, I'm struck just listening to you thinking about the primary care space that probably half of the technologies you mentioned are being used by our physicians and nurse practitioners, behavioral health specialists, and then another half of them still on the horizon. So, so much possibility exists there. And I want to talk about regulation for just a minute. Your work with the M Health Regulatory Coalition has come in two phases since forming in 2010. The first one helped facilitate the development of basic guidelines that were passed by the FDA at the end of last year that gave some regulatory framework in the medical app marketplace. With 100,000 such apps already created, offering all kinds of assistance, as you described, there are so many different categories to consider. So maybe tell us what kind of apps will be governed by this first round of FDA guidelines, and what essentially do the guidelines serve to achieve? Well, let me start with the second part of that question, what the guidelines, uh, why they were needed. To be honest, one of the big challenges uh, that we have in this space is the investors 
needing to know is a particular app that is being developed going to be regulated by FDA or not. And the reason they want to know that is quite simple. It, it dramatically impacts the cost of the development of the product, but also the timeline for the development, because you have to factor in uh, compliance with FDA before going to market. So knowing what FDA is going to regulate was just pivotal, really, to a lot of startups getting the funding that they needed. And uh, it addressed, you know, typical fashion, uh, 80% of the open questions, uh, the basic questions anyway, and left about 20% that were still kind of fuzzy. But that 80% was a big win for the industry because it meant that if you were developing an app in that space, you could see relatively clearly, is FDA going to regulate it or not? So what do those guidelines say? Well, basically, it identified two different apps or two different categories of apps uh, that might be regulated. The first one is where an app is functioning as an accessory to a medical device. So let's say you, you make a blood glucose meter and you want to produce an app that will be used maybe to control the blood glucose meter. Maybe uh, it'll take the readings out of the meter and it'll graph them on your cell phone so you can see how over the last week you know, my, my blood glucose has uh, trended upward or trended downward. FDA said if you're making an app to be an accessory to a medical device, the app will be regulated. Well, you know, truth be told, that's pretty common sense. I think we expected that because if the accessory doesn't work, it can mean the whole medical device uh, doesn't work. The second category is equally intuitive, but it, you know, it was nice that FDA kind of laid it out there and then gave a whole bunch of examples, and that is whenever you have an app that does the same thing that historically a medical device has done, you can expect the app to be regulated. There's a lot of examples, a simple one being an electronic stethoscope. Stethoscopes have always been regulated, so if you take an iPhone and you use the microphone on the phone as a way to listen to the heartbeat, and the app uh, basically um, uh, translates it into a, a meaningful sound uh, for a physician, um, that's, uh, uh, that's basically an electronic stethoscope, and it would be regulated. Uh, a little bit more sophisticated would be an example of an app that came out last spring to do laboratory testing on urine, and it got a lot of attention. What you actually do is you test urine in a cup. You put a test strip, a chemical reagent test strip, in the cup of urine. You take it out and you use the camera on the phone to basically read and measure uh, blood glucose levels and a variety of other substances that, that you test urine for. And FDA basically said, look, in the past, a cash register size machine used to do that. Now it's on a cell phone. That's terrific. But it's doing the same thing as a medical device. Therefore, it's regulated. So really, those are the two buckets. It either mm -hmm. helps a medical device or it replaces a medical device by doing the same thing as uh, what a medical device would have historically done. Once they laid that out, as I say, that answered maybe 80% of the questions. Folks were able to decide whether or not uh, it was regulated, and investors were able to understand what the cost would be. I want you to talk to our listeners about this larger role that you all are playing with various regulatory bodies. We talked about the FDA, but the Federal Communications Commission's involved, the FDA's is involved, and how are you helping shape their thinking about the mobile medical app world and uh, what are some of the concerns that consumers might have, safeguards in terms of security, or how are you trying to help shape the regulatory thinking about this new arena? Well, that's a key question, is making sure that we have clarity not just on what the rules are, but frankly, which agency has the responsibility to make those rules and for what. So um, you, have, you have FDA, which is kind of squarely focused on the concept 
concepts of safety and effectiveness, right? So FDA's role with all technology uh, is to make sure uh, that, it, that the technology does what it says it will do and does it in a manner that is safe and effective. Um, but when you're talking about technology uh, that sits on a cell phone, and a key aspect of the functionality then is transmitting those results or information or whatever it might be to either another telephone or to a server or, or to some other computing device, you necessarily involve the FCC because they control the airwaves and they control, by and large, the devices that transmit over those airwaves. So you have um, simultaneously a cell phone that may be functioning as a medical device, perhaps along the lines that I just said, and at the same time is functioning as a cell phone, a piece of a communication equipment. So it's really important to parse out which agency has responsibility for a given question and to get those agencies talking with one another. And fortunately, they have been. As I understand it, I think they have a standing meeting on Thursday afternoons where they talk about what each of them is doing and making sure that they're coordinating, not frustrating uh, the industry. You layer onto that then the overall federal policy of trying to encourage the adoption of electronic health records. You know, Mr. Obama uh, committed $20 billion basically to encouraging the, quote, meaningful use mm -hmm. of electronic health records. And a lot of this stuff dovetails with electronic health records because it, it is data that might get deposited into an electronic health record. These products might be portals into an electronic health record. So the connectivity to that is very substantial. So you get ONC, Office of the National Coordinator, involved um, as well. The key is that they talk to each other because the worst thing that could happen, in my opinion, would be agencies working against one mm -hmm. another, um, working in opposite directions, giving conflicting signals. So uh, I do think there's a, a strong effort within the administration to make sure that they're coordinated. Do you know, I also understand it's not just the federal agencies, but Congress itself in the House and Senate that is looking to change the oversight of medical mobile apps. And I found that somewhat surprising. What, what are these pieces of legislation and is there a role for Congress in this? Do you think that this will also help or hinder the growth of uh, the use of medical mobile apps? So there are two pieces of legislation that have been introduced, one in the House and one in the Senate. Um, the House bill is called the Software Act and uh, the one in the Senate is called the Protect Act. Overall, the thrust of both pieces of legislation is removing from FDA regulation a whole variety of uh, health information technology, including a variety of, of mobile apps. I, I can't speak to the motivation for the legislation. I, I think basically they want to avoid FDA regulation. That's what the legislation does, so it seems that must be their intent. I have publicly, honestly, come out against uh, both of those bills because I, I think they would be bad uh, for the industry, and I have a few reasons for that. Uh, the first is they take some very important and, frankly, risky software and remove it from FDA regulation. I'll give you an example. Let's say you wanted to develop an app for detecting melanoma, and there is this uh, technology being developed. You basically would take a picture of a mole on your skin, and then maybe six months or a year later, you take another picture of that mm -hmm. mole, and the software compares the two pictures and then offers a view on whether there are any changes to the mole such that it might indicate melanoma and you ought to go see a doctor. Um, the legislation would deregulate that. 
and I can't for the life of me understand that. Um, and it's not just that. I'm just drawing an, uh, an example sure, from sure. a whole variety of, of different apps that would be deregulated. Um, that's not good for patients. I think patients need to have greater confidence mm-hmm. that an app that they rely on not to seek medical care right. um, actually works. But it's also bad for industry because the worst thing that could happen to industry is patients getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is terribly important that both uh, patients and doctors um, believe that the apps that are out there will do what they say they will do. Um, I saw just last week a study results that were released uh, I think 250 uh, physicians were surveyed, and 42% of them say that they don't prescribe mobile apps because they aren't regulated, and they therefore have concerns about whether they work or not. Hmm. Well, that's a big limitation if you're if you're trying to convince users that an app has value, and they're concluding that because it's not regulated, um, it it may have uh, dubious value. That will hold back the development of the more important side of the app spectrum. You'll still be able to develop games, no problem. But if you really want to move the needle on public health, mm-hmm. you need that public confidence. You need the user to believe that it will do what, it, what you say it will do. We're speaking today with Bradley Merrill Thompson, uh, FDA law expert and general counsel for the M Health Regulatory Coalition, the voice for M Health Technology Stakeholders in Washington. Mr. Thompson is a attorney with the firm Epstein, Becker, and Green, where he leads the Connected Health Initiatives. Brad, I want to sort of pull the thread on on that uh, thought that you had there, and you've really uh, taken it to heart about the need for uh, having uh, regulatory engagement, and you've decided to take take it on the road. Uh, you've got a, a road show coming up, the M Health Educational Outreach Tour to various institutions to better educate clinicians and developers uh, at some of the top research and teaching hospitals around the country. So tell us a little bit about when you'll be going out and where you'll be headed. We've already been several places. We've been to Stanford and the University of Illinois and Uh, the University of Texas and uh, UC San Diego. Um, We're going to be at MIT. We're also going to be at a place called the Innovation Center in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, we're also going to Berlin. Uh, Part of, there's a big program over there, M-Health Summit in Europe. A lot of European companies that do business in the U.S. will be there. And basically the objective is to create a community around people in the M-Health space who are basically dealing with FDA regulation. And uh, at this point, there are well over 100 companies that have navigated the FDA process for a mobile app. And so we're um, uh, drawing on, on those people who have the expertise of having been there, done that, and we're organizing panel discussions uh, where they can basically share their experiences, um, good, bad, or indifferent. So they can say what worked, what didn't work, the lessons that they learned, uh, frankly, in order to keep from making mistakes in the future. And so we're bringing all these entrepreneurs in to listen to their colleagues speak about their experiences, really in the hope, uh, number one, of developing best practices. Uh, how exactly do you get through the FDA process most efficiently? Um, but also to learn, um, frankly, some of the um, benefits of having done so. Some of the companies talk about what it cost, what the investment was, and what they perceive the benefit to have been. And ultimately, the goal is to sort of foster mentorship, uh, to get some of these experienced entrepreneurs connected with those who don't have the experience so they can form kind of informal support networks and help one another uh, as they try and navigate this. So it's, it's been exciting to watch, to see these folks come together and help each other. 
the universities have been great. There are about a dozen national and international uh, organizations that are sponsoring it, uh, professional societies, and, and the discussions that we've had with these entrepreneurs have just been fascinating mm-hmm. to find out what they're working on and, and what, their, what their challenges are. We've been speaking today with Bradley Merrill Thompson, FDA law expert and general counsel for the M-Health Regulatory Coalition, the voice for M-Health technology stakeholders in Washington. You can learn more about mobile medical app Roadshow and his work by going to mhealthregulatorycoalition.org. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Well, thanks very much for having me. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Republicans have claimed for years that the Affordable Care Act taxes small businesses and families. Most recently, Senator Tim Scott of South South Carolina made the claim that the ACA's taxes of $800 billion hit those two groups, small businesses and families. But that's misleading for several reasons. First, the claim overlooks the tax credits available to both groups. Second, there are few taxes directly affecting small businesses. And third, the 10-year figure Scott gave mainly affects individuals earning more than $200,000 a year. The $800 billion number is an estimate from the Congressional Budget Office and Joint Committee on Taxation on how much government revenue would be lost over a decade if the ACA were repealed. So keeping the law in place would increase government revenue by the same amount. But the law also includes about $600 billion in net government spending over the same time period. And included in that is $519 billion in premiums and cost-sharing subsidies that would go to families. Hundreds of millions of dollars more pay for Medicaid expansion, also benefiting families and even small businesses whose employees may gain insurance coverage that way. Now, the families getting subsidies aren't the same ones getting hit by the ACA taxes. A family of four earning up to $95,400 qualifies for subsidies or Medicaid for lower-income earners. About 40% of those $800 billion in taxes, however, affects families earning more than $250,000 a year or $200,000 for individuals. They're subject to higher Medicare payroll taxes and a new 3.8% tax on investment income. Those folks are certainly families but they represent less than 2% of taxpayers. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. During the school year, some 21 million American children receive free or reduced-priced lunches through their schools, often the healthiest meal these children eat during the school day. 
Yet, once school is out, only 10% of these children participate in the free meal programs during the summertime. And studies have shown that many of these kids tend to gain a significant amount of weight over the summer as a result. A group of researchers at the University of South Carolina sought to tackle that issue with a program they developed called the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge. They deployed the program at a number of large community-based summer day camps. And lead researcher Dr. Michael Beetz says they relied on a simple known fact about kids. They love competition. Staffers during the first snack period would ask kids to hold up the fruits or vegetables or water that they brought, and staffers would then, and then throughout the course of the week, everybody's group points are tallied, and then at the end of the week, on when they get together to do an assembly, they announce the winner of the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge for that week. And so there is this competitive process. Dr. B says the simple competition and group reward system created a dramatic shift in the average camper's lunchbox from chips, cookies, and sugary drinks to more fruits, vegetables, and bottled waters. We saw some pretty dramatic increases in the proportion of kids that brought fruits and vegetables and water. But then on the back end, we also saw that they also reduced the things that we didn't want them to bring in without even saying please reduce these things. And so kids are not just bringing additional fruits, vegetables, and waters. They're substituting these healthier items for the less healthful items. The study, published in the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, showed a dramatic shift in the kids' homemade lunches with this really simple and inexpensive incentive program. They see this as a model for summer day camps across the country, which serves some 14 million children per year, often in underserved areas. The next phase of the study will look at the actual weight and body mass index of kids in the next round of campers to calculate the impact on lowered weight gain. In our next studies, which are going to be larger, that will incorporate the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge, we will also be tracking BMI from mm -hmm. the beginning to the end of summer to see if these interventions, if those have any perceptible effect on changes. The Healthy Lunchbox Challenge, a simple competitive challenge and reward system designed to get kids to switch out high-fat, high-sugar, high-calorie foods from their diets in favor of healthier snacks and beverages. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.